We're glad those, for you, those of you who have joined us out uh, in, in, uh, on the internet as well this morning. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, we're in chapter 23 this morning. <clears throat> the man was uh, unemployed, uh, like really a lot of folks are today. Um, he didn't have any money, he was broke, and he didn't have any food. Pantry was bare, refrigerator was bare. And that was a bad enough problem for himself, but he was the sole provider for his sister and her seven children. And so as he walked uh, around the streets trying to find some food, he came across some, but he didn't have the money to buy it. And so finally, when no one was looking, he grabbed it, stuffed it in his pocket, headed home. Well, he was caught before he got home. And this was in a time when stealing food was a very big deal. It was a theft like any other theft. And he was tried and he was convicted and he, he was sentenced to five years in prison stealing food. By the time he got out of prison, he had served 19 years because of all the times that he had tried to escape and the additional years that got tacked onto his sentence. And if you've known anybody that's gotten out of prison and tried to make their way back into society. You know how tough that is, and it was tough for this man. Added to that, he kind of had a, um, a visible and tangible reminder, not only to himself, but everybody else that he came in contact with, that he was a thief. At that time, in that place, he was required to carry a yellow card in his pocket that would forever identify him as a thief. And it seemed like every time he tried to make some step into this world, you know, the, the outside world for an ex-prisoner has its bars of its own. And every time he tried to get through those bars, he was pushed back and pushed back until the day a local pastor opened his door to him, invited him in, gave him a great meal that evening, and gave him a clean bed, bed to sleep in that night. But old habits die hard. And in the middle of the night, the man got up out of his bed. He went to the cupboards where he had seen the silver put that night, the silver uh, place where is that they had uh, eaten their meal on. He took all that he could, put it under his arm, and he quietly crept out of the house and out into the street. Seemed like bad luck followed him. It wasn't long before he was arrested again. He tried to explain to the constables that picked him up that uh, this silver had been given to him by a local pastor. And so they took him back to the house in handcuffs and they knocked on the pastor's door and he opened up and he said, uh, Bishop Muriel, um, this man claims that you gave him all of this silver. And the pastor said, that's right, I did. And he looked at the man and smiled and he said, but you, you, you forgot he opened the cupboard doors and he pulled out two silver candlesticks and put them on the table. He said, you left these behind. And he put his arms around the constables. He said, thank you for doing your duty. He said, but you can let this man go. They undid the cuffs and they left the house. Now, some of you might have heard that story before. It is the centerpiece of the Victor Hugo's play, Les Miserables. And we'll come back to that story at the very end of the message, but we're going to find out how disorienting that was.
for Valjean. Because he thought he knew how life worked and he thought he knew how people worked. He thought he knew how he should function and how everyone else functioned and even God. But when you are the recipient of inexplicable mercy, it changes how you think. Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 32. Last week we saw Jesus uh, making his way through the streets of Jerusalem to, uh, to the cross where he'd be executed. And we want to just read a couple of verses today. I think one of the most significant moments in Jesus' entire passion when he was going to the cross and dying for sinners like, like me. Beginning of verse 32. <clears throat> Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. Um, let me just point something out. Um, I grew up in the church, and I remember singing songs about Calvary. And there are even churches around today in our area that are called Calvary. And I'm like, where did that word come from? The first language that the Greek New Testament was translated into was Latin. And in Latin, the word for skull is calvaria. Calvaria. So that's where we get the name Calvary. It's a reference to the place of the skull. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. <clears throat> and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. I, Father, I can't imagine, I can't imagine thinking of others in such painful agony. I think about the times when I've been really, really sick or have had something wrong with my body. It's very, very painful. It's so all-consuming. By that I mean it's all, I'm so focused on me and the hurt at the moment, the discomfort at the moment. And Jesus was pinned to a cross praying for others. And I just want to join my fellow disciples this morning in saying thank you for giving up your one and only son for that horrific payment plan for my sin. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think both in life and in death, probably what stands out most about Jesus is his warm relationship with sinners. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what tends to stand out most about Jesus, both in his life and then when he comes to his death, is his warm relationship, relationships with sinners. You see here him being executed between sinners. Verse 32, he's executed between sinners. In life, Jesus bent down to be with sinners. 
to such a degree that he was uh, described by his critics as a friend of sinners. Now they meant it to be an insult. Jesus took it as a compliment. He didn't hobnob with the Sanhedrin, with the religious leaders. He didn't hobnob with the Roman leaders, the political leaders of his day. He, he did a lot of social distancing, what we're talking about these days. He did the opposite. He did a lot of social nearnessing with people who had strikes against them by the folks around them as they looked at them. Gentiles, like Roman soldiers. Lepers who were cast outside of the community of faith. Had to live on the outskirts of town, outside of town. Tax collectors. Jews who were regarded as traitors because of their working with the Romans as well as gouging their own people and, of course, also the prostitutes that Jesus knew, women who would sell their bodies to anyone who had the price. And all of these folks, rather than the people who were respectable in town, Jesus welcomed, he ate with them, he embraced them, he healed them, he forgave them, he defended them. That was in life. And here we have him in death. Jesus was lifted up among sinners who were criminals as a criminal. He was lifted up among sinners. And Isaiah had prophesied this in Isaiah 53 verse 12. He said about the Messiah, of course this was 800 years before Jesus came on the scene. It said that the Messiah would be counted among rebels. Interestingly enough, the word for <clears throat> the word for the, uh, thie the two men that were crucified on either side of Jesus was, can either be translated thieves or revolutionaries. And I think that was probably more true. Revolutionary. He was counted among the rebels, the revolutionaries. Executed between sinners. And number two, executed by sinners. Executed by sinners. Verse 33, when they came to a place uh, called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. These are Roman soldiers, hardened infantrymen. And, you know, if you have been in combat or you know someone who's been in combat, you know that war is barbaric. It doesn't matter what century it's fought in. But make no mistake about it, 2,000 years ago, it was a kind of barbarism that you wouldn't recognize and even people who've been in combat probably wouldn't recognize. The soldiers were allowed to a large degree to do what they did with impunity, certainly on the battlefield, but even in civilian life. Often were very unaccountable for their behavior in the streets, in the cities. And so it's why that if you as a civilian saw soldiers marching down your street, you'd go inside, you'd lock the door. Now on this day, these men were merely doing their duty. It is a duty they had done probably hundreds of times. And they had learned to pay no attention to the people that they were killing. Just get the, get the job done, do it, and move on. Now, it's interesting as we look later in the chapter, Luke 23, we see one of the soldiers struck 
by how Jesus died to such an extent that he said, surely this man was the son of God. It depicts him as one of the commanding officers of this operation, but the grunts, the guys that were doing the dirty work, didn't seem to pay much attention to the man. Uh, For a minute, I want to take you back to an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 22. Because I think it's, this is kind of a side note, I think it's important for us to um, be reminded that what happened to Jesus was not an oops. It was not an accident. Uh, Next month, Pastor Kyle is going to preach a sermon on the conversation that Jesus had after he was raised from the dead with these two men walking down the road to Emmaus. And if you know that story, you know that these men who were followers of Jesus didn't recognize him. Something about the new glorified body has some unfamiliar aspects to it. So they didn't recognize him even though he walked with them for quite a period of time. They also had some attributes of the old body that carried along to the new body. He still had the scars in his wrists and his feet, the scars in his side. Well, what I find so fascinating about that conversation is they were bemoaning the fact that Jesus had died and they said, we thought he was the one who's going to deliver Israel. And it says that Jesus took him back to the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and he showed them from the Old Testament all that was predicted about him. And no doubt, he certainly spoke about this particular passage, Psalm 22, great preacher called the Prince of Preachers in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, believes that Jesus actually quoted this entire psalm from the cross. And probably one of the reasons he believes it is the first verse is recorded in the Gospels as Jesus saying this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And there's so much in this psalm that doesn't fit with anything that we know of David who wrote the psalm, doesn't fit with anything in his life. And so surely it is a prophecy about someone else. Look at verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now there's nothing in David's life that we know of that This would have been true of him. Crucifixion wasn't invented until many centuries after these words were written. And yet he's talking about someone. He's speaking as if it were him. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What's happening in our text? These soldiers are crucifying Jesus, nailing him to a cross. Verse 18 of Psalm 22. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Back in Luke 23, 34. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. There's a reason this psalm is often called the psalm of the cross or even the fifth gospel. It seems to be pointing to somebody other than David, somebody down the road in history. And you think about this this incredibly insensitive, insensitive, total lack of compassion. These soldiers are at the feet of a, of a man who's bleeding to death, who's strangling to death, and they've got the dice out and they're rolling the dice to see who's going to be the new proud owner of a condemned man's clothing. 
By the way, this is a reminder. Jesus, all the pictures that you see painted about Jesus, portrayed with this wisp of cloth around his torso, not true. Part of the punishment of crucifixion was the total dishonor of hanging there naked for the whole world to see. Executed between sinners, executed by sinners. And then this magnificent sentence in the middle of verse 34, when Jesus extends mercy to sinners. Would you do that? Would you show mercy to someone who was killing you? The other night, my wife and I watched about a half an hour of an old movie called A Time to Kill. Any of you know that movie? A story about a black man, Deep South, whose daughter was taken by two young white men, horrifically raped, thrown over the side of a bridge, dropped 30 feet, they left her for dead. She survived. She survived. And her daddy went out and found those two men and he killed them. Now he's on trial for his life. And it was interesting. The defense was going to argue that, that the dad was temporarily insane when he killed them. And yet the prosecutor was slick enough on the stand to get him to admit that day on the witness stand, I believe these men deserve to die. And he said, I hope they burn in hell. And there's a soldier or a policeman that ends up on the stand, <clears throat> actually ends up as a witness, a white policeman ends up um, trying to convince that white jury, all white jury, that they should send, set Carl Lee free because he tried to show them if that was my daughter, that's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. And most of the dads here say the same thing. That's what I'd do. And here's a man who's being killed in the most excruciatingly brutal, painful way that human beings have ever devised to kill somebody. He says, Jesus says, in the throes of unthinkable agony and unquenchable thirst on the verge of death, he prays not for himself, but for the men killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Falsely charged, found innocent, sentenced to death anyway, whipped, spit on, punched, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, mocked. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now you assume the them are these men who are gambling for his clothes, the foot of the cross. But is it limited to them? Why just them? They were just carrying out their orders. What about Judas who sold him out? After all, it appears that he didn't know what he was doing. 
After it sunk in, he tried to give the money back he had been paid to betray Jesus, saying, I've done wrong. I've condemned an innocent man. What about Pilate? Pilate found him innocent and still buckled to the pressure of the Jewish leaders. Oh, what about the Jewish leaders? Paul says in Acts chapter 13 in a sermon that he's preaching that those Jewish leaders didn't really get it. Verse 27, the people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophets' words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. There are many scholars who are convinced that this is purposefully vague who Jesus is talking about. Spurgeon loved this prayer, he says, for its great indistinctiveness. It's not distinct who he's speaking about. And perhaps Jesus wanted to show people who weren't at the crucifixion that day but whose sins were just as deadly as those who had contributed to this moment in time. And to let them see, those who weren't there that day, the breadth of his mercy. And might that include us? After all, our sins crucified Jesus just as much as the soldier's hammer did. When we think about forgiving others, let's just steer away from Jesus for a minute to think about ourselves. When we think about forgiving others, who who is forgiveness really for? When you feel prompted to forgive someone on Who do you do it for? Do you do it for yourself? Do you do it for them? Do you do it for someone else? It often seems like, anyway, it often what's being promoted today is for ourselves. I love the movie Diary of a Mad Black Woman, Tyler Perry's movie. And Tyler Perry's a Christian, but when I watch his movies, I keep thinking, brother, that's not right. (laughs) Brother, that's not right. And the, the sticking point I have in that movie is when uh, the woman who was abused by her husband and he kicked her out and he brought in another woman who the father of his children to live with him and then he ends up getting shot in a courtroom and paralyzed from the waist down and this other woman abandons him, cleans out all his money and so forth and so his uh, wife goes back to try to take care of him. Well, that's not quite right. If you've seen the movie, you know that what she does is gets even with him. And one day she's at lunch with her mother and and her mother finds out that she's been mistreating this man who mistreated her. And she says, you got to forgive him. Not for him, but for you. And this is what is commonly heard throughout our culture. 
It's one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself to forgive. Maya Angelou. Oscar Wilde, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. It's payback. Someone else said, forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. Can you imagine Jesus hanging on that cross in indescribable pain, forgiving these soldiers or whoever else is in the sweep of his forgiveness for himself so he can have peace or so he can somehow get even with these people as Oscar Wilde intimated. The second reason that people might forgive is probably the most common one, at least it used to be. There's a belief that this is the right thing to do. And anyone who has uh, any kind of Christian background or Christian grandparents, they've heard some Christian teaching would think, this is what Jesus did. This is what I should do, therefore. It's kind of, it's painful to do, it's hard to do, but take a deep breath and say, I forgive you. Kind of get it over with. It's a little like your fiance losing her diamond ring in the toilet and you just go, you hold your breath and you stick your hand in and you just try to get it over with as soon as possible. It's an awful experience, but it needs to be done. Think for a minute about what Jesus said, though, in that prayer. Did you ever, ever occur to you that Jesus didn't say about whomever he's praying for, I forgive you? But rather he said, Father, would you forgive them? Now, why was that? Don't you remember the time that people were brought before him and think of the paralyzed man and and Jesus looks at him and he says, sons, your sins are, are what? Forgiven. Surely Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. In fact, people at that incident said, oh, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Well, just to show you that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal him. And then you'll know. And yet at this moment, when his killers are in view and the, perhaps the Jewish leaders and Judas and perhaps all of us are in view, Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. Jesus said to the Father, don't charge them with this sin. Why is that? We say that all of the Christian life is rooted in and flows from the gospel. We believe we need the gospel. Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. We need that in order to cross a line from death unto life, in order to go from hell to heaven, in order to go from under God's wrath to under his pleasure. We need the gospel for that line. But we need the gospel every day and every moment and every hour after that line as well, brothers and sisters. 
all of the Christian life is not only rooted in, but it flows from the gospel. Meaning, if the gospel has saved us, it has also empowered us, and it has changed us, and then how can we not forgive? Because we love the one who has forgiven us. When the enormity of Christ's forgiveness for us hits, how can we not in turn forgive others? Because everything I think, do, and say is now aimed at glory, glorifying God as my thank you. This is what I think was going on at that moment. And I, I'll confess to reading between the lines here, but I, I'm just struck by the fact that he did not offer the forgiveness. He went to his father instead. And wasn't it true that Jesus said over and over again when he, when he was here on earth, I don't do anything here for me. I do it all for the glory of my father. I don't make up my own sentences. I say what he tells me to say. I don't make up my own plan for here on earth. I do what he tells me to do. I'm here to glorify him. And in those moments of his final breaths, he turned to the Father. Even in his prayer for forgiveness for those who have wronged him, he is turning to the Father and seeking to glorify him. And so too for us, as we forgive, I'm convinced that probably the most difficult thing that Jesus will ever call you to do and me to do is forgive those who have wronged us. And my guess is that when the topic of forgiveness comes up on a blog post you read or a sermon you hear like today or even in a conversation you have with a friend, that you immediately go to that list that you have tucked away in the recesses of your mind a list of one, two, three, four, maybe ten people that have wronged you. And you have them in a prison that you are not allowed to open. Let me have you look at Colossians 3, 3.13 before we wrap up. <clears throat> Make allowance for each other's faults. Now that sounds like we just stop there. That sounds like we just, we kind of like, oh, Jimmy's, that's Jimmy. You know, just make allowance for him. He does some crazy things and we just have to live with Jimmy. But that's not the end of the verse. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. And now it's tied back to the gospel. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive each other. Remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. The sin of my offenders. Let's, let's put all of the sins that my offenders have done against, committed against me. All their sins. Let's put that on the scales over here. And then over on this side of the scales, let's put everything I have ever done, said, or thought that's evil in God's sight and put it on this side of the scales. And which side of the scales do you think would go down? I 
I don't know about you, but I know for me which side goes down. This is so counterintuitive to release people from what they have done to us and what they have owed to us. It messes with our understanding of the world. And now we go back to Valjean, the man we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. When the bishop forgave him, essentially patched things up with the officers, sent them on their way, gave them the things that he had stolen and said, God bless you. Valjean didn't know what to do. It was so disorienting. It, it just, it didn't, it didn't fit with the world he had grown up to know. He'd started out as a petty thief. In prison, he became a hardened criminal. He had come out of prison uh, ready to take what was rightfully his. He had been, uh, you know, for some food, he had ended up in prison for 19 years. Starving man. And this is what he says. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. I know a world that operates like that. I know how to deal with people who operate like that. One word from the bishop and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. This was France, the 1860s. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. I wonder if forgiveness may be the greatest evangelistic tool there is. It's so unexpected. It's so inexplicable. The other week, one of my granddaughters was at, <clears throat> at our house for sleepover. and uh, She just turned 10, and we were playing uh, a game, and... We thought, in light of the fact she's double digits now, grandma and grandma ought to talk to her about boys. We want to get our two cents in before she stops listening. And so we were talking and asking questions, and, and the conversation eventually led back to the dating years for Betty and I. And uh, we had a pretty rocky courtship it was three and a half years long and it included four breakups three of them were mine including the last one which was three months before we were to get married now in my defense Betty's breakup was seven months long and my break all three of my breakups totaled two months We're telling these stories, and, and my granddaughter cocks her head, and she looks at my wife, and she goes, why did you forgive him all those times? And I thought, isn't it interesting how young we learn that that's not normal? That's not the way things work. Unless we're in the one who with his hands and feet pinned to a cross, blood streaming down from his back and his head, his hands and his feet, said, Father, forgive them, 
they don't grasp the implications. They don't fully understand what they're doing. And some of you that are watching out there and some of you who are here today, you saying to me, Pastor, you don't, you don't know what my ex-husband did to me. You don't know what my girlfriend did to me. You don't know what that former friend did to me. You don't know what my uncle did to me when I was a little boy, little girl. And you're saying what I have heard many, many, many times. You don't understand. And what you mean is if you would have experienced what I've experienced, you would know that I am not about to forgive them. And that's true. And that's why you need people like me and others who love you to tell you it's not about what you experienced at the hands of that person. It's about what you experienced at the hands of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to enable you to forgive. That's what's going to change your heart about that person to the point that you can actually pray for them, you can actually bless them, you can actually desire their good. And I want to pray for you right now as we close that God would pour out this amazing reminder of his amazing mercy so that that can be your next step. Father, many of us, perhaps all of us, have this list in our minds of people who have done things to us that feel so egregious, so unacceptable, so awful, that we just say, I, you know, I can f forgive the people who have hurt me this much, but not this person who's hurt me this much. And we don't have the power in our own flesh to do these kinds of things. But we do have the power because of your spirit that lives in us as believers. And would you come and begin to dismantle the animosity and the resistance and the self-righteousness and the um, sense of being justified in holding this grudge and this bitterness and this resentment? Would you begin to pound away at it with the blood of Jesus Christ? And that we would begin to grasp some measure of the weight of your inexplicable mercy so that the weight of their offenses against us can become smaller and smaller until your mercy can outweigh it all in Jesus' name.